Father, it is an awesome thing to think about what Christ has done for us. But we pray that you will help us to get a a deeper sense of what is coming and the cross means for this world. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know how many of you saw the front page of the Buffalo News yesterday, but there was an article about um, a new ad campaign that uh, includes putting out billboards in a few American cities. It especially caught my eye because one of the places the campaign's taking place is in Indianapolis and around putting them on the uh, 465 that goes around to be on that road many times. And so it caught my attention. It's ads that are being based uh, actually by an Amherst-based company, Center for Inquiry. And uh, they are focused on um, probably something different than we might be used to. And the, the paper had a picture of one of the billboards. I think this is the one from Indianapolis. And it simply says, you don't need God to hope, to care, to love, to live. And it's sponsored by livingwithoutreligion.org. Now, as you can well imagine, the variety of responses to people to that kind of uh, advertising. Uh, I'm sure there are people who may try their best to cover that with graffiti or something. Um, There may be people who want to protest or boycott. And there will be other people who will say, oh, no one's going to pay any attention. It doesn't matter. There are going to be a variety of responses, but what struck me as I read that, a couple of things. One is, it is possible to be loving and to care about people without God. There is a provenient grace that God has put into our world that uh, allows us to be somewhat moral people, ethical to some degree. But the other thing that struck me about that was that it misses the whole point of what our faith is about. And it says to me that maybe perhaps we haven't done a good good job of communicating exactly what our faith is about. But it also, it says to me that, you know, we've forgotten and we're not communicating to people. And maybe that's because we don't see it ourselves. That our faith is so much more than just living and loving and hoping and caring, as important as those things are. Our faith is about a relationship with the one who created us and who wants to take us as sinful, broken people and restore us and to, make, and to fill our lives with all the fullness that he intended to be in our lives when we were created. And somehow we have missed that. Somehow we've missed at least doing as good a job as we might have of communicating that to people. And I suspect it's because it's not focal to our lives. One of the problems with thinking that faith is is purely about these kinds of things, and again, they're very important things, but when that's what faith is about... 
the next thing that we tend to do and the underlying thing that happens is that we tend to minimize our sin. We tend to minimize the things that draw us away from God because that's really not all that important. What's important is, am I nice? And it is important to be nice. What's important is, do I love? And it's important to love. What's important is, do I care? And it's important to care. But unless the foundation of all of that is our relationship with God, it will be hollow and empty eventually. Because what God wants for us and what the center of our faith is about is having the kind of relationship with God that eternally and even to some degree, a great degree on this earth, we know the fullness of who we were created to be. And I think too often we have missed that. And we miss, and when we miss that, when we, when we shift the focus, we tend to minimize our sins and minimize the way that our sins affect other people and how they affect us and how they estrange us from God. And when you read through the Old Testament, you see the people of Israel who forget that. They think their life is just about what they want to do. They forget that their sin has consequences. They forget that that when they reject God, they are rejecting life itself. And when they turn from God, they are rejecting all that God wants to give them to make their lives what he created them to be. It's a fascinating thing to watch them say to God, this this wooden idol we've created is more important to us than you are. This statue that we're coming to worship has more power than you do. These possessions that we get, this power we're looking for, better than anything you could give us. If you're like me, you read through the Old Testament and you think, what is wrong with these people? And then the Lord whispers in my ear, Ahem, pardon me. And we forget that our sin tears us away from God and has consequences. We want to think that it doesn't. And I suspect, based on sometimes the decisions we make, we think that it doesn't. We want God to say, well, it's not that big of a deal. You know, Let it go. But consequences of our behaviors are woven into the fabric of our world that God created. And it's not because God is trying to deny us good things. It's because he's trying to keep us from running down a path of destruction. And we we do this all the time. We just don't connect it. If you are a parent, or you can imagine if you were a parent, and your 10-year-old grabbed your car keys one day and unbeknownst to you, drove to Buffalo and spent the day up there and then came back. Would that bother you? Would you need to have a conversation with them or more than that? Would you feel like punishment would be necessary? And would you punish them because they disrespected you? Or would you punish them because they didn't do what you wanted them to do? You punish them because you love them. And because you, you realize that kind of behavior has, is going to end badly. 
And you don't want that to happen. There is inherent in that mindset God's punishment of sin and the consequences of sin. It is to, when God sends Israel into exile, it is to try to help them understand how serious their sin is and hopefully to cause them not to commit those things again and to turn them away from destruction toward life. And that's exactly what ends up happening with Israel. God sends them into exile because of their sin and the consequences of it. And I think if it were us, if we were God, after all that he has done for them and all the ways that they have rejected him and thumbed their noses at him, I think we'd say, okay, that's it. Forget about it. And we come to Isaiah 49 and the prophet gives us a word from the Lord that says anything but that. God says to his people, though you've sinned against me, though you've turned your backs on me, though you have declared in a thousand different ways that I am less important to you, less powerful, less loving than these idle, crazy things that you worship, I've not given up on you. And my solution is to send to you my servant. And my servant is going to do some amazing things for you. If you look at verses 5 and 6, he talks about the servant who will bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. He will restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that he has kept. I get this feeling when I read that. It's such relational language. You can almost sense God saying, all right, come back over here now. I know you're hurt. I know you've been through some tough things. I know you're fearful. Come over here and let me hold you for a while. I want you to know how much I love you and care for you. And you can almost sense God's arms embracing Israel and saying, I'm here for you. My servant is coming to restore you to me. This whole mission of the servant is a mission of restoration and redemption and rescue. And despite all that Israel has done against God and all the ways in which they have rejected God, God does not reject them. And he sends his servant to be the restorer of all that is broken between them. What's interesting to me as I read this is that this is not just a restoration between God and Israel. This is a restoration that reaches in to every town, street, home in all the world. This chapter begins not talking about Israel, but God saying, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. My servant is coming to you. You wonder, what does that mean, the islands and distant nations? And I I think it's, it's a poetic way of God to say, this is for all of you. Distant nations would represent places like Babylon and Assyria. Great nations of the world, nations that have ruled and conquered and, and are powerful and large. 
Nations about which the world trembles. The servant comes for them. But he also comes for islands. For places that the world tends to think of as insignificant and unimportant and not real powerful. You know, we think about our world. We think about nations that can wield power. We think about our nation, Russia, China. When we think about powerful nations and the world trembling in fear, we probably, the thing that comes to our mind probably is not the Canary Islands or Malta. In our way of viewing the world, those places are kind of insignificant in terms of power. And God says, insignificant or significant in your eyes, it doesn't matter. This is a word for all of them. My servant is coming to restore all of you to me. To offer to you grace and mercy that you've been longing for and for which I created you to experience. I think verse 6 is so instrumental in this passage. And it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful way in which he says this. God says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. That's not enough for you. I mean, for my servant, that, that's nothing. I'm also going to make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. I think we need to hear that because we so often are stuck in limiting God. We don't do it necessarily intentionally, but I think we do it subconsciously. We tend to think that God views the world the way we do, limited, judgmental, small. And we set up our ideas of who is worthy of God's grace and who is not. And we have a tendency to think that God does the same. But the truth is, no one is worthy of God's grace. Not any of us. Which is why all of us are offered God's grace without condition. If God's grace were limited by conditions, we would all be in big trouble. And so the people who initiate and fund this ad campaign are offered as much grace and mercy from the Savior as we are. The people who manipulated the stock market and and, and wreaked havoc with our economy and the economy of, of the world are offered just as much grace and mercy from the Savior as we are. Dictators who mistreat their people and steal from their people and withhold from their people are offered just as much grace and mercy from the Savior as we are. People we vehemently disagree with are offered just as much grace and mercy from the Savior as we are. People who hurt us are offered just as much grace and mercy from the Savior as we are. We may not like what people do and we may not affirm their behavior and we probably shouldn't And sometimes we don't necessarily like it. But the servant savior comes as much for the people that we might want to limit 
as he does for any and all of us. Remember, it's Jesus who says, the one we believe this prophecy is about, says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. I've always loved J.B. Phillips' book. I've loved the book, and the title speaks to me every time I see it or hear it. Your God is too small. And he's right. Can we believe that the God who says the servant Savior comes for the whole world really does? For you, for me, for all of us. But we find once again that this servant who comes, as we will see throughout this prophecy, reveals himself in ways that we wouldn't expect. You know, we would think if God is going to come and make an impression on the world, it would be this great, triumphant, victorious parade and invasion into the world. You know, jets flying in, tanks rumbling in. This is what we think of as getting people's attention. And if you want to change the world, you've got to get people's attention. And instead, we see humility, vulnerability. We look at Jesus, and what do we find? Defeat, futility, cross. Verse 7 speaks of the one who comes as despised and abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. He's a complete failure in the eyes of the world. People aren't saying, wow, is he something? They're saying, wow, why would I pay attention to him? God says, this is the way I work. And I'm going to come in the, with the spirit of vulnerability. Because he is more, he's not just concerned about the end result. He's concerned about the process and about relationship. And about drawing us to him, not demanding that we follow him. I mean, obedience that is... When we obey because we have to, have we really obeyed? Obedience is always a choice. And God would far rather have a relationship with us because we choose to than relationship because we have to. But it goes against the grain of how we think things are done. You know, we tend to say... Let's talk about power. That's a nuclear bomb. That's a vast army. It's an emperor. It's a king. We want God to flex his muscles in this world. But instead, God comes as an infant in a manger and lives a pretty obscure life and ends up hanging on a cross. The only alternative to the spirit of gentleness and humility and surrender and sacrifice is oppression. Either God is going to call us and woo us and and cause us to know his love, 
or he's going to put chains on us and drag us into the kingdom. And God is concerned about relationship. And so he sends his son so that we will see his love and his mercy and be drawn to him. What intrigues me is that when the servant comes with humility, just being despised and rejected, hanging on a cross, when all is said and done and the smoke clears, he says in verse 7 that this one who was despised and abhorred by the nations and the servant of rulers, kings will see him and rise up. And princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2 that we read earlier. And he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And eventually, the humble crucified servant will be known by everyone as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And everyone will worship him. It's the faithfulness of the Lord's servant that makes our redemption our restoration possible. It is the coming of the servant and his sacrifice that brings about the opportunity for us to know life in its fullness. You know, sometimes I I get the impression from some folks that their idea of being a Christian is living, is they want to be a Christian, but they want to live as close to being, to not being a Christian as they possibly can. And the servant comes and says, no, 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 no. I want to give you fullness of life. I want you to know what it means to truly live as I created you to be. That's why my servant comes and dies. I like what Eugene Peterson says in his book, Practice Resurrection. He says, we thought we were looking for God. No, God's looking for us. We thought we were seeking God. No, God is seeking us. It is the faithfulness of God that makes our redemption, our restoration possible. So how are we responding to his faithfulness? How are we responding to the vulnerable, crucified Savior And his love for us. 
How are we responding to the offer of the Almighty God to give us restoration and fullness of life in Him? Holy Father, help us to to get a, a larger glimpse of what the coming of Jesus means for us. Help us to see your faithfulness and your goodness and give us grace to respond with surrender and obedience. Fill our lives with all the fullness of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.